0: Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, your guide into realms of the strange and the fantastic. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week I bring you a piece of my fresh new fiction, available in audio for the first time anywhere. I'll also let you know the latest about my endeavors as a writing professional. So let's get started. Here is this week's story. Today I'm bringing you part four of my science fiction story, The Nearness of You. If you're new to the show, go back to episode 212 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In last week's episode, Tad went back with Sarah to her apartment after their successful date. Jill, being tethered to Tad, went along with them and found her instance attached to the anchor point on Sarah's bed. Tad was fully in the moment with Sarah, but when he saw the digital ghost of his wife lying on the bed, he froze. In that moment, Jill decided that she needed to save Tad and Sarah's romantic encounter, so she made herself into a kind of invisible threesome partner, first by egging Tad on, and then by giving herself completely over to Tad's sensory inputs. In effect, this made it seem as if she were inhabiting Tad's own body while he made love to Sarah. But Tad and Jill made a critical error. Neither one of them obtained Sarah's consent first. After the sex was over, Tad instinctively reached out to caress Jill's body. And, of course, his hand passed through her virtual form. Sarah, who is no fool, quickly realized that Tad was running an instance, He had let someone else watch them having sex without her permission. Enraged, humiliated, and deeply hurt, Sarah locked herself in the bathroom and screamed at Tad to get out of her house. Tad tried to explain the truth, much too late, but Sarah was having none of it. Jill could only stand by, watching in heartbroken agony, as Tad went home and cried himself to sleep. The Nearness of You. Written and read by Chris Lester. Part 4 The weekend is a long, slow horror for both of us. Tad tries repeatedly to call Sarah, to text her, to message her, but he receives nothing back but stony silence. I privately suspect that she has blocked his number. I keep up my end of the bargain, grading all of his students' homework assignments and returning them electronically. But that leaves Tad with nothing to do but stew in his own misery. He sits for hours in front of the television, not paying attention for more than a few minutes at a time. Saturday comes and goes without us ever stepping outside the house. He gets up only to use the bathroom or to pull some leftovers from the refrigerator, or to open another bottle of beer. He falls asleep on the couch, surrounded by empties. I spend the night working on his lesson plans for the next week. I don't get tired, and it helps to distract me from the creeping dread of what awaits us on Monday. Until the work is done, and I, too, am left with nothing more to do. Will Sarah report Tad for what he did? She certainly could. Everyone knows that Tad doesn't do telepresence, but if she makes an official complaint, the principal might ask to look at his implant records. Or the police might, if she decides to press legal charges. Those charges wouldn't stick. Since Jill is no longer alive, and therefore not legally a person, Tad hasn't violated any privacy laws by running my instance in Sarah's presence but to clear his name, the truth about me would have to come out. After that, Tad might find himself getting dismissed on psychiatric grounds. People have this weird hang-up about not wanting crazy people looking after their children. This is your fault. The accusing voice comes to me in the small hours, when the world outside is quiet, and I hear nothing but the sound of Tad's breathing. I try to push it away, but it won't leave me alone. You had to push Tad to start dating again. He told you again and again he wasn't ready. He'll never be ready if he doesn't try, I tell the voice. And what if he isn't, the voice asks. Who are you to tell him what's good for him? You're just a cheap copy of the woman he loved, a simulation of one frozen moment in her life. You're going to judge him for not moving on? You literally can't. If he's stuck in the past, the number one cause is you. I sit there in the darkness of the living room, a digital ghost on a dusty chair. The tears I cry leave spots on my dress, but the upholstery is unmarked. If I disappeared this instant, nothing about my absence would stir one atom of the world around me. I know what I have to do. I stay out of Tad's way on Sunday. He's in no mood to talk to me, and that's probably for the best. I spend the time writing, composing letters on my private folder. Tad could open it if he wanted to. It's stored on his implants, after all. But up to now, he has left it alone. When he is ready, it will be waiting for him. I have not spoken to any of our friends or family since the accident, But I find that I have plenty to say. I have watched their lives move on without me, watched them grow up, go to school, get married, have children, change careers, grow old. If I had died in a more normal way, I might have had time to say some of the things that are on my heart, but my life was cut short in an instant, and there was no chance for goodbyes. Now I take my time with each farewell. Letting each one know that I love them, that I am proud of them, that I dream the very best for their future. The longest letter is for Tad, of course. There are so many regrets, so many hopes and dreams, so much for which I must beg his forgiveness. I have held on too long. I have stunted the life of the man I love. He does not see it that way, not right now, but in time he will understand. In time, he will heal, so long as I do not keep reopening the wounds. On Monday, we return to the school. Tad has not slept well, and he goes in early and hides in his classroom so he won't have to speak to the other grown ups in the halls. First period comes, and the students filter in. He hands out instructions with a kind of robotic detachment then leaves them to work on their assignment in small groups. He numbly makes the rounds from one table to the next, answering questions in a low, even voice. Several students ask him what's wrong, but he does not answer them. The bell rings and the crowd filters out again. Second period is shared prep, but Tad does not leave the classroom, as I had expected. I'm going to take a walk, I tell him, Okay, he says, not looking at me. With our connection to the school's network, leaving Tad's side is as simple as walking out the door. I head down the hall and around the corner to Sarah's room. She is sitting numbly in front of her desk, reading something on her implants, her eyes scanning left and right across a screen that only she can see. I open my control panel, and, for the first time in three years... I switch my instance from private to public. I knock lightly on the open door. My hand doesn't make contact, of course, but the simulated sound is projected to anyone nearby with active implants. Miss Greenlee, I ask. Sarah stirs, then dismisses the screen with a gesture. She forces a smile. Yes? How can I help you? I take a few steps inside her classroom then clasp my hands in front of me. I'm here to offer an explanation. And an apology. My name was Jill Phillips. Tad was my husband. Sarah's eyes flare with anger and pain at the mention of Tad's name, but then she notices my peculiar phrasing, and her curiosity gets the better of her. She studies me warily. What do you mean your name was Jill Phillips? I move a few paces closer. Her augmented reality display will already have marked me as a telepresence, but I want her to see it for herself, to note the slight transparency in my features, the way my hair remains motionless in the breeze from her little desk fan. Most of all, I want to look her in the eyes, and to let her see the pain and regret in my own. I owe her that much. Jill Phillips was killed in a car accident a little over three years ago, I explain. The car's auto-nav system was engaged, but there was a mechanical failure in the brake system as she approached a crosswalk. I take a slow, virtual breath, in and out. There were twelve children crossing the road at the time. They weren't paying attention. Why should they? Cars always stop now. Sarah's mouth falls open, her eyes wide in horrified fascination. It takes her a moment to find her voice. My God. What... What happened? I shrug, weakly. The computer did its job. It did the math. Made the only possible decision. It steered the car into a lamppost. Sarah winces. Shit she whispers. Jill was killed instantly, I say. At the time, she was in an active instance with Tad. The connection between us was cut off, and I... got stuck. I look down at my feet, unconsciously wrapping my arms around myself. My voice grows even quieter. I still remember when they asked Tad to identify the body. Seeing myself like that, all cold and gray on a steel table. I shudder, not because of any genuine physiological reaction, but because the real Jill would have done so. I can't help it. Anyway, that's why Tad said my name on Friday night, I say, glancing up at her. Her eyes are wide, her expression sickened, but I can't tell what she thinks about all this. I was there with him, with you. He's had... a very difficult time trying to move on. I thought... I thought that if I gave him some encouragement, it would help. Instead, we hurt you. And I am so sorry for that. Slowly, Sarah sinks back into her chair. She says nothing for a long moment. So, wait... You've been running the same instance for more than three years?" she asks. I nod once. Technically, Tad is the one running the instance. That's why he doesn't do telepresence. I'm using all the storage and processing power. I send her an image of my current operating stats, with elapsed time, memory usage, and storage requirements. She blinks in astonishment as she takes in the numbers. This is amazing, she murmurs, her eyes scanning back and forth as she examines the data. I've never heard of a simulation running this long. I shrug. Someone had to be first, I suppose. I hope Tad will send my files to the developer after I'm gone. I'm sure they would be useful. Sarah's eyes snap back to me. After you're gone? He's shutting you down? I'm going to shut myself down. I say softly. I look back down at my feet, shake my head. This has gone on too long. I'm not helping him get better. And now I've hurt you, too. I turn to leave, then pause. I look back over my shoulder. I hope you'll give Tad another chance. He's a good man, and... And I think you'd be good for each other. I can't think of anything else to say, so I start walking toward the door. Wait. I hear Sarah get out of her chair, hear her footsteps on the tile floor behind me. She steps around my virtual form, turns around and faces me. She's fiddling with her hands, bouncing nervously on the balls of her feet. It takes a while for her to put her thoughts into words. So, you're with him all the time, right? I nod. Does... Does he actually care about me? Or was I just, like, a substitute for you? Her voice catches on the last phrase, and she blinks back tears. I smile, sadly, and wish that I could put a comforting hand on her shoulder. Tad thinks the world of you, I tell her honestly. You're smart and funny and a great teacher and very cute. She blushes a little at that. Whatever you felt between you, that was real. I look away. And he needs something real. More real than me. I'm not so sure about that, Sarah says. Her voice is hesitant, thoughtful. I look back at her, frowning quizzically. What do you mean? She gestures vaguely with both hands. "'Your instance. You've been running for a really long time. And, well, we still don't know how consciousness works, exactly, but we've gotten really good at simulating it. Well enough that we can send these computerized copies of ourselves all over the world, and we accept the memories they bring back with them as if they were our own.' She paces back and forth for a moment, clearly struggling to organize her thoughts. At last, she makes a frustrated sound, then throws up her hands, helplessly. She turns back to me, pointing at her own head. Look, to be totally honest, I'm not sure that the thing I call myself is any more real than you are. We're all just... software. Sitting in a black box, crunching data fed to us from an external sensor suite... Does it really matter if those sensors are a bunch of nerve endings or or microphones and pressure pads and video cameras? She shakes her head. I don't know if you're real. I don't even know if that question makes any sense, but you feel like a real person to me. And I don't think you should turn yourself off because you think it will make someone else's life better. I feel my eyes widen in surprise. All this time, Tad and I have been thinking that other people would consider him crazy for keeping me around. Were we wrong? When I don't say anything, Sarah suddenly holds up an index finger. Hang on. She swipes through menus in her implant display for a minute or two, then transmits an image to me. A photograph of her and a teenage girl. The student is maybe fifteen years old, with light brown skin, curly black hair, and a broad, sunny smile. Sarah has her arms around her, and the girl is leaning into her with a contented look in her eyes. This is Araceli, she says, her tone sober. She was my best buddy in her freshman bio class. She also had a pretty severe mood disorder. She turns and looks out the window, saying nothing for several seconds. I can guess the rest of what happened. She thought she was a burden, Sarah says, her voice thick with sudden grief. She thought everyone in her life would be better if she was gone. She shakes her head, her eyes distant and full of tears. She was wrong. I bow my head, a show of respect for the girl's memory. I wish I could feel everything the real Jill would be feeling right now. My software is excellent, but there are limitations. My stomach cannot churn in discomfort. I cannot swallow back the lump that should have formed in my throat. I tell myself that the absence of these physical markers does not make my sorrow any less real or genuine. I can imagine Sarah's pain at least. I can hear the truth in her words. And that makes me question, for the first time, the wisdom of my decision. I have already broken Tad's heart once, with my death. Do I dare to do it again? You are breaking his heart every day, the voice inside me says. He has already lost you, you fool. The best thing you can do is let him go. But I imagine Araceli had a voice inside her, too, and it probably told her much the same thing. Slowly, I sit down on one of the classroom tables. Sarah sits down beside me, her hand close to mine. I think she would be holding it if she could. I hear you, I say quietly. But this life, it is so hard for both of us. Can you imagine being with the person you love every minute of every day and being unable to touch them? I shake my head. I don't want to be gone. I don't want to... end. But I don't know how to make this better. I don't know how to stop it from hurting so much. Silence falls between us again. But then, suddenly, Sarah looks up. I see the spark of inspiration in her eyes. And maybe a glimmer of hope. I have an idea, she says. And that's the end of Part 4. What is Sarah's idea? And is it enough to help Jill and Tad heal the damage they've caused? Find out when our story concludes next week. Connie Willis said... Every place and time an author writes about is imaginary, from Oz to Raymond Chandler's LA to Dickens's London. So come along with me to the uncharted realms of my imagination. It's time for the Weekly Writing Report. I wrote 3,709 words this week, over the course of five hours for an average writing speed of 742 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 65 days without breaking my chain. This week I made a little more progress on None Shall Dwell Within. We're back in Kate's POV now, as she faces new complications in the investigation of the murdered senator. Kaya has promised the full support of the Ministry of Intelligence, but they have their own ideas about how a counterintelligence operation should be run and it remains to be seen whether the agents that were sent to help are interested in anything like cooperation. Meanwhile, David and his organized crime task force are trying to figure out what the White Widows people are up to. He strongly suspects a major offensive is about to unfold, taking advantage of Malcolm's momentary weakness. But the Whites may have badly misjudged what William Westerson is capable of when his master's kingdom is on the line. The story is now in chapter eight, and the manuscript is a bit under twenty-four thousand words. I also did some story planning this week for a new Metamore City spin-off project. If you've read Homecoming, you may remember that one of the characters is reading a series of romance novels about a noble scion and her socially awkward bodyguard. I got some feedback from my beta reader that I should actually write those books. I've been thinking about this off and on for the last nine months, and this week I started doing some rough outlining for what this series could look like. I'm calling this the Honor and Natasha series for now, after the names of the main characters, and I've still got a lot more planning and research to do, but I think I might try writing the first book in the series after I finish None Shall Dwell Within. These books would be published under a pseudonym, both for purposes of marketing and because they're books that already exist within the Metamore City universe. But I'll keep you all informed on the project as it moves forward.
1: And now, the feedback. Hello, Chris. This is Missile Dragon Calling. First of all, thank you very much for sending out the Metamore cards. That was very considerate to your fans. Second, thank you very much for your explanation on the Metamore timeline when i was reading the things unseen and it, it got to the end it sounded like all the burning was imminent and you know we're having this very soon so it's nice to know that it's going to take a while to get to the end of the story arc of course which brings me to another concern you mentioned that you're 40 years old right now well i'm a good 16 years older than you are right now which means i may very well die before the series reaches its climax um Gee, Chris, uh, please, get to writing. I think maybe a goal of 10,000 days without breaking your chain might be a good goal to set right now. Okay, okay, I'm just kidding. A little bit. Maybe. Anyway, have a happy Yule, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, however you want to put it. And I look forward to the next story. Talk at you later.
0: Thanks, Mithril Dragon. I'm glad you liked the holiday card. As for the rest of it, I can't make any promises, man, but I'll do the best I can. Thanks for the call. Ted Stoffers writes, Thank you for the last novel. I finished a couple of weeks back, and I'm letting the queue fill up with a few. The Lost in the Least was as good, if not better, as your previous work. I did notice that each episode seemed a little thin. I'd listened to one, and it just seemed that not much happened in each episode— I found them much more satisfying when I listened to two or more together. Are you becoming a cliffhanger addict? Robert R. McCammon is. He loves to end every chapter with a cliffhanger. See The Wolf's Sour. He has a series where he wraps up most of the story, and the hero has one more thing to solve. Hi, Ted. I'm not familiar with Robert McCammon, but thank you for the recommendation. I got hooked on cliffhangers from listening to J.C. Hutchins' podcast novel, Seventh Son, way back in 2007 and 2008. Hutch had some awesome cliffhangers, and I started making a point of ending chapters in that way whenever I could. It took me a while to get the hang of it, but I think I did pretty well in the second half of The Lost in the Least, when all of the dominoes I had set up over the course of the novel were ready to start coming down. As for the episodes feeling a bit thin, I think that's probably an inevitable consequence of moving to shorter chapters. Moving from a bi-weekly to a weekly show meant that I had to make some major adjustments to how I produced my podcast, and shortening the average episode length was one of the most important ones. Every 30-minute episode takes about an hour to record and four or five hours to edit, which is a big chunk out of my weekend any more than that, and my ability to keep doing this would really start to suffer. The great thing about podcasting is that it's asynchronous, though, so if you'd rather save up a few episodes and listen to them all in one go, that is absolutely an option. I've been doing that myself for season two of the Let's Be Legendary podcast, and now that I've got a good backlog built up, I've been binging that thing like it was the hottest new series on Netflix. Thanks for writing in, We got a new review on Apple Podcasts. B1701 gives us five stars, and references episode 211, saying, Really well done on the latest episode, Chris. I'm sure those who posted the story prompts are over the moon with how well your offerings turned out. Keep up the great work. Podcast listeners, if you're not listening, you should be. We also got our first review on Podchaser. Aaron Furian also gave us five stars, and says, I love the stories and the world Chris has managed to bring to life. I look forward to every episode. Thank you both for helping to spread the word about the show. Every rating and review helps others to find us. If you'd like to help get the word out, you can review The Raven in the Writing Desk on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, and Stitcher. And of course, sharing episodes on social media helps too. Spread the love this holiday season. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to MetamoreCityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash authorchrislester, the fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Mastodon handle is at authorchrislester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.